81% of Christians in our country have experienced this in their lives of faith. Okay? Past few years, 81%. Clue number two, 15 different reasons were given as to why Christians have experienced this. And I'm just going to give you five. These were five popular ones. Okay? Number one, hypocrisy of religious people. Two, past negative experiences with religion. Three, human suffering. Four, science and and kind of scientific advancements. And number five, exclusivity of religious claims. Okay, these are reasons why uh, people felt about this, about the study. And then clue number three, last one. Christians see this particular topic as something to move through, while other religions and even people of no faith background often see it as something to be praised. Okay, think about it. Try and think about your answer. The answer of what this study was about is doubt. Answer was doubt. Any hands? Anyone get that? Hey, a couple people. Nice. Hopefully. Maybe you're being honest and dishonest. But 81% of Christians, though, 81% of Christians have said they experience doubt in their religious beliefs. Those feelings of doubt have come from those five reasons, along with 10 others. You can go check the study out on your own. And while doubt is often seen as a negative thing in Christianity, it's often praised within other religious worldviews or even unbelieving people. This study is from the Barna Group. Uh, this is a group that does a lot of studies within faith and Christianity in our country. And the, whole, the study is titled Doubt and Faith, Top Reasons People Question Christianity. came out 10 days ago, uh, March 1st. Uh, it's online. You can go find it yourself. It's a really interesting study. But doubt, it's not a term that's unique to Christianity, right? We use that word all the time. It's just a feeling of uncertainty. It's a lack of conviction about different things. And we experience doubt a lot. And, we, and it's often used in a really negative context, right? We begin to doubt people who let us down. Maybe they say they're going to show up and they don't. Or they, 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 they commit to something and then they, they, they pull back and then we begin to kind of doubt if they're trustworthy or doubt if they're going to be there, right? We begin to doubt companies or organizations when, when poor leadership decisions are made. During this time of year, we doubt the season is ever going to change. I mean, Taylor was right, okay? I am not happy this morning. I was not excited to wake up after losing an hour of sleep and then to see snow. It's just the truth. Like, I've stopped believing in the seasons, right? We, we begin to doubt these things. But while we have those feelings of doubt and uncertainty in our, in our everyday lives, oftentimes those feelings may, may work their way into our spiritual lives, into our lives of, of faith. Maybe we find ourselves beginning to doubt what the Bible says. We read verses that, that just are so far from our culture or some of our own desires. And then we read the, the Bible and think, well, gosh, that's just so old-fashioned. There's no way it can really mean that, because that's just so different than what we, from what we celebrate in our culture and what, what I actually really want to do. Sometimes we doubt our own standing with God because of our doubts and our questions. We, we, maybe we, we believe in Jesus, but then we think, if I really believed, would I have these doubts at all? Would I have these questions? Maybe, maybe we begin to have doubts about who God is because we are walking through significant tragedy and suffering. We experience these hardships and then we think, how can God be good? Because I'm walking through this. This week I was reminded of this in particular when I read a quote of someone who was reflecting on a tragedy they had walked through as a teenager. 
And they were reflecting on their life and how this tragedy completely changed the trajectory of their life. This is a quote from this person. It says, In the sleepless hours of my early injury, I wrestled against my reformed upbringing. No longer were my questions academic. And and this was no casual question and answer session in a living room Bible study. Lying in bed paralyzed, I fought off claustrophobia with hard-hitting questions. Let me get this straight, God. When, When bad things happen, who is behind them? You or the devil, are you permitting this or are you ordaining it? I'm still a young Christian. If you are so loving, why treat your children so mean? Those are tough questions, aren't they? Like, what do we do with doubt? Here at RIV, we're in a series called The Sticky Gospel, where we're kind of sprinting through the Gospel of Mark. And, and throughout the Bible, we see Jesus interact with a lot of people many of whom wrestled with significant doubt, people who believed, who who wanted to believe, but they just, they couldn't, or they struggled with unbelief. And we're going to see one of those interactions in the text this morning. That's where we're going to spend our time. So if you brought a Bible with you today, you can open up to Mark chapter 9, verse 14. The verses will be on the screen uh, as well. And as you're flipping there or tapping your way there, I just want us to get some context as to what's kind of happening around this interaction. It's just going to help us really understand and put us in that place uh, this morning. So right before this interaction Jesus has... He was on a mountainside with a few of his disciples, some of his closest disciples. And they had this crazy interaction. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Jesus is talking with his friends here, his three disciples. And out of nowhere, he starts glowing. Literally glowing. Not not just the metaphorical like, oh my gosh, you're glowing. You're really happy. Like, no. Jesus lit up like a light bulb in front of the disciples. And they did not know what to do. And then as this is happening, two other people kind of crash the party, but they're not just normal people. It's Moses and it's Elijah. Moses and Elijah were two heroes of the Jewish faith, and they were long since dead. They were in like the hall of fame of the Jewish faith, right? These were, these were guys that the, these disciples had been like, we read about you. Like you're, you're one of our like faith heroes, and they were just talking with Jesus, glow stick Jesus, like on the mountainside. And, and I just imagine the disciples probably felt a little bit like seeing a celebrity in public. You know, I was like, is this, is this real? You know, but even weirder because these celebrities were dead hundreds of years ago. Like put yourselves in the disciples' shoes that day. Imagine seeing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah just on the mountain saying, hey, how are you? How you been? How are things going? You know? Peter was one of the disciples there, and he's really the bold disciple, and he makes a suggestion. He's like, this is a really good thing. Let's just set up some tents. Like, let's make this a camping trip. I'll make some food. Like, let's just hang out here a while. We see Peter suggest this, and this makes sense. If you are one of those disciples, this has to be the highlight of your life. One of the greatest things you've ever seen. Hands down, who would ever believe these men with what they saw that day? So they leave the mountainside on a high, right? Just, this is amazing. How could we experience this moment? And then they walk down the mountain with Jesus and they find the rest of the disciples and it is a not so awesome thing that they see. They see the disciples and they're in this big dispute with a huge group of people. Many of them were the religious scribes. So they're coming down off the mountain into an argument. And that is where we pick up the text. Mark chapter 9. Verse 14 says this. 
when they, meaning Jesus and the three disciples that were with him, came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, meaning Jesus, they were amazed and they ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? So here we see a situation that we've often seen in the Gospel of Mark, right? Jesus is just interacting with a group of people. People have sought him out because he's got a reputation now. Like he's been doing these miracles. He's been teaching these things and people want to find him. And on this day, when, when the crowd found Jesus, they ran up to him and they greeted him. But we actually see one person single Jesus out and answer that question that Jesus just asked. This is verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered Jesus, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't do it. So when Jesus asks that question, the man uh, that's really the, the, the focal point of this interaction, he comes forward and we don't know anything about him except for one thing. He has an immense need. The physical health and well-being of his son. That is what has driven him to seek out Jesus. We see that his son is having seizures. That his son can't speak. And that it's, it, this hasn't just been happening for days. It's been years. You know, as a parent, it's often such a sad and tragic situation when your children are sick. And even more so when you can't do anything about it. When you've tried the medicines, when you've tried the doctors, when you've driven everywhere and nothing is working. Now this dad is actually really smart to do what he did. To bring his son to these disciples. Because if you remember three chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had, had given the disciples power and authority to deal with this very situation. Jesus sent them out and he's given, he gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And then they came back after doing it and they reported to Jesus like, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. It worked. We did the things that you told us to do. And this man had probably heard about that. So he brought his son to the people who could help him. But they couldn't that day. It says they couldn't cast out the spirit. Now, when I look at this dad and what he does with Jesus, it, it really resonates with me. You know, it, it brings to mind what I think many of our relationships with God may be like. When we are in need, when we don't know what else to do, when we've exhausted all the potential solutions to the problem, then we go to God. And then on the other side of that, when life is good, when nothing dire is happening, when, when we aren't seeking the answer to some dilemma in our life, it's really easy for us to forget God altogether, isn't it? To ignore him. To forego praying with thankfulness and gratitude for his provision and his grace. I mean, this very thing happens in my life, and I'm not proud of that. I wish it was different. Because this reality, I think, reveals something about our relationship with God. We so often want what God can give us more than we just want him, his presence. Instead of just being a child who loves to be with their dad, who loves to be in their presence, to experience him, 
We just want what he can give us. Now, we don't know the depth of the internal struggle of this man in Mark chapter 9. We don't know it. But we do know he came to Jesus. And we do know he was hoping for a miracle because nothing else had worked. We see Jesus respond after hearing about this, this young man's condition in kind of a weird way. Verse 19, Jesus replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So this is an interesting response. I mean, I read that, and it seems harsh. This dad comes up to Jesus and says, can you help? And then Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long must I put up with you? I mean, if someone asks you that question, they're usually not smiling at you. Like, how long must I put up with you? You can't even smile and say it normally. It's like sarcastic, right? I mean, this seems really severe. What is Jesus doing? What's he getting at? Well, here, we, again, it's always important to remember the context. This is really important. Look at the context of this verse. Look at verse 19. Who is he talking to? It says he replied to them. It doesn't say he responds to him. So when this man comes to Jesus and asks, Jesus responds to them. Who are the them? Well, it's a lot of people. There's multiple groups of people there that day. First, you have the disciples, right? Some of whom had just seen Jesus light up like a flashlight on a mountain with two other spiritual giants. You had those guys. Then you had scribes. These were religious leaders who constantly asked Jesus to test him, to frustrate him. And then you had everyone else, people who were curious, people who didn't know. This is the general public. They're like, we've just heard stuff about Jesus. And I think when Jesus says those words, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? He is getting to the issue that he's been getting at over and over again. He's talking about their hearts. He's calling out their continued unbelief and their lack of faith in him. He has revealed his authority enough. Miracles, teachings, compassion, mercy, over and over again. And they still don't get it. They don't believe. What Jesus' words are emphasizing here is the lack of faith in those he's around. Not necessarily just this man. He responds to them. But the boy is brought to him. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And this is what happens in verse 20. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and he rolled around foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. Many times it's thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. Okay, so right after Jesus responds to, to the crowd, the boy is brought to him, and Jesus sees the pain firsthand. It's not just a description of, how, of what's happening. It is a visual what's happening. 
the spirit in him, in the presence of Jesus, it causes this boy to convulse and fall on the ground. And in this heartbreaking scene, we see Jesus' compassion. It's a different kind of question he asks here, isn't it? How long has this been happening? The dad says, Jesus, it's been a long time. Since he was a kid. And this isn't even the worst of it. Sometimes it happens by water and he almost drowns. Sometimes it happens near fire and he's almost burned. The father continues to make this request clear to Jesus. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out. Picture him crying out in in desperation here. Look at what he says. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. We learn a lot about this man from, from that one sentence that he says here. He's wrestling with doubt, yet he believes. He's clinging to that belief. He makes a confession of faith in who Jesus is and his power to bring healing to his son. Yet he also admits unbelief, significant doubt in his life. How do those two realities coexist together? John Calvin wrote this about this man here in Mark chapter 9. He says, he declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. Here we see this reality of of belief and unbelief. How we so desperately want them to be separate entities in all of us. They're often just a tangled mess inside of every single one of us. And what happens is that mess doesn't get untangled all the time. Sometimes it gets even more tangled up when we walk through suffering, when we walk through tragedy and and hardship. You know, I actually think there's two types of doubt when it comes to our spiritual lives. I think you have unbelieving doubt and you can have believing doubt. And I think it's really important for us to understand the difference. Barnabas Piper is a Christian writer. Uh, He wrote a book uh, on this very topic. Uh, He's a podcaster too. But, But he writes this. He says, when unbelieving doubt poses a question, it's not interested in the answer for any other reason other than to disprove it. Unbelieving doubt is on the attack. It is much more interested in the devastating effect of the question itself to erode the asker's belief and hope in what is being questioned. Unbelieving doubt does not try and seek the truth about God. The goal of unbelieving doubt is to attack and to erode one's belief. These are the types of questions maybe you have gotten from people in your life who don't share your beliefs and do not want to. And they don't want you to believe what you do. This is a really prominent tactic among many popular, well-studied atheists to pose questions that plant seeds of doubt that will grow so big that only unbelief can grow. This is the reason why some people walk away from their faith. Their doubt has just grown too large. 
If God exists, why would he make only one way to get to him? Doesn't seem fair. If God exists, why do bad things happen to good people? If God exists, why didn't he show up when I needed him? When people need him? See, this isn't new. These types of questions, these types of interactions, they're all throughout the scripture. They happen in the very beginning, in the first sin. In the third chapter of the Bible, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And God had given Adam and Eve clarity as as to what he desired for them, for their good. And Satan planted a seed of doubt by twisting the words of God. He said, did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that. He said from one tree. But do you remember what happens from that question? Adam and Eve begin to doubt. They doubt the goodness of God. They doubt themselves. And then they sin. Now, it's important for us to know it's not wrong to ask big questions like those ones I asked a few minutes ago. It's not wrong. We have a thinking faith. Right? We, have, we have the word of God, his very words to us, to provide us with answers and truth. But it's really important to gauge the heart behind the question, the why behind the question. Is the desire in asking those questions to to believe, to trust, to find out the truth, or is it to disbelieve and to attack? So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus interact with religious leaders who have possessed unbelieving doubt all over the place. They ask questions to what? Stir up unbelief to test Jesus, to stir up dissension. They don't want people to love him. We saw this in the previous chapter, Mark chapter eight. After Jesus had fed thousands of people for the second time with a little boy's lunch, you would think the Pharisees would be like, this is amazing. But look at what happens. Verse 11 of chapter eight, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. The demand of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. So after the miracle, you would think the, disciples, the, the Pharisees would say, help us know you more. Help us understand your power and how you do that. But they're like, hey, we need a sign from you, Jesus. Right after he had done this miracle. And we see the toll this is taking on Jesus. He sighs deeply in his spirit. In his inner being, he's just broken over this. He says, no, you're not going to get that. And these Pharisees leave these interactions with Jesus so upset. At this point of the account, they're saying, we need to kill Jesus. That's where they're getting to. While this posture of unbelieving doubt was really prominent among the Pharisees and religious leaders and scribes, it wasn't the attitude of everyone that approached Jesus. Some approached him differently with believing doubt. Piper differentiates this heart posture from unbelieving doubt in this way. He says, believing doubt will always anchor in God's character and word as unshakable and then take on questions that harass and attack. Sometimes these are emotional questions 
Other times they're philosophical or biblical. Sometimes they won't be answered because they are beyond the abilities of the believer or because they delve into mysteries that nobody can rightly answer. This is when the believing doubter is at their greatest risk. But if this person stands fully in their relationship with God, even those unanswerable questions will not overcome them. Do you see the difference? This person, as they deal with their uncertainty, is anchored in the word of God, in the character of God. As they experience their doubts, instead of being on the attack, they are at rest in the truth of who God is. See, believing doubt, it doesn't avoid questions. It approaches questions and disbelief hopeful because of God's continued faithfulness and his love for us. When we see this dad in Mark chapter 9 approach Jesus, we don't know the state of his heart. We don't know the tangled mess of belief and unbelief that that exists in him. The closest we get to knowing that is just what he says. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Do you resonate with what this man says that day? I do. If you do, what kind of doubt are you living in? Do your doubts come from a place of of unbelief, anger toward God, a lack of trust in in him, in his word of, of who he claims to be? Or do you doubt from a place of trust, a belief in Jesus and standing on a foundation of his love and his faithfulness that you have experienced in your life, that he has shown you? See, wherever you are today, I think it's really helpful to remember how Jesus treated those who doubted, who wrestled with unbelief. He showed grace to them over and over again. This man comes to Jesus wrestling. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Jesus, that day, gives grace to this man by not only sharing truth with him, everything is possible for the one who believes, but by proving it, by having compassion on him and his son, He heals them. And the disciples then ask Jesus, why couldn't we do that? We did it before. Why not this time? And Jesus answers to them by speaking to their heart. He reminds them that faith and total dependence upon God's power, that is what he desires for these disciples. Jesus gives grace to us when we need assurance of who he is. 
If you are here this morning and you struggle with doubt, if you're like this man, you're in good company. Some of those who walked side by side with Jesus for years experienced significant doubts. One of them was the apostle Peter, the one who suggested the camping trip on the mountain. Bold Peter. One time he was out in a boat with with his friends and with Jesus and there was a storm and Jesus said, hey, walk out here. Walk out onto the water. And he does and he's walking on the water. But once Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, he begins to sink and Jesus catches him. And do you remember what he says? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You have another disciple named Thomas. We know him as Doubting Thomas. His doubt was so significant. That is how we remember him today. He wasn't there the day that Jesus appeared to all the disciples. And all the disciples, when Thomas comes back, you're not going to believe this. Jesus is back. He's like, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not back, guys. Don't mess with me. Unless I put my hands in, his na- in the nails where the nails went, unless I put my hand in his side where the spear touched him, I'm not going to believe it. Thomas was the I'll believe it when I see it disciple. Maybe some of us resonate with him. But later on, Jesus appeared to the disciples again, and guess who he went to? Thomas. <coughs> Approached him, said, Thomas, come here. Put your hands here. Put your hand here. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Jesus spoke directly to his doubts. Over and over again, Jesus gives grace to those who wrestle with questions and unbelief. In our lives as followers of Jesus, we're going to wrestle with doubt. They may be brief moments, moments where we see resolution and clarity come quickly. That could be a grace to us. But maybe we experience doubt and the season doesn't end. It's long and hard and difficult and we don't really know what to think. But as doubts come forth in our spiritual lives, I think it's really helpful for us to to dive deeper, to ask ourselves questions, to help us understand if those uncertainties and those doubts are coming from a place of belief rather than unbelief. There's three questions I think we should ask ourselves regularly when we find ourselves in this place. The first question is this, where are you anchored? Are you anchored to Christ? and the truth of what he has done for you? Or are you your anchor? Are you clinging to yourself, your power, your ability to make things happen, to be in total control of your life? When we go to Jesus with our doubts, we're given grace. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've just tried to deal with everything on your own just to figure it out. Well, if that's you, I want to encourage you. Turn to Christ in faith today. Let him help you with your doubts and your questions. This starts first by acknowledging your need for him. Your sin, your brokenness without him. We repent of that means we turn, we change our direction of living for ourselves. And we live for Christ We turn to him in gratitude and in faith. 
of his death on the cross for our sins. We, we accept the righteousness that he gives to us. And we begin to live lives free from the power and penalty of sin. And the beauty of this is that once we are anchored to Christ, he never lets go of us. Even as we struggle with doubt, as we grow in our faith and new uncertainties arise, he is always there, ready to give us grace. Where are you anchored? The next question is this, where has God been faithful in your life? See, in the midst of the doubts you experience, remember the times that God has actually been faithful and shown his goodness to you. There are things in my life of faith that I, I doubt much less than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because I've seen God's faithfulness in my life. I've seen people come to faith in him. I've seen how God has changed my own affection toward sin, certain things that I loved <laughs> that were so ungodly. I'm not completely free of those things, but I just don't want them like I did anymore. God is changing me. He's opening my eyes. The spirit is at work. I've seen how God has used specific people in my life to help me follow Jesus. And so often that is from watching them follow Jesus, clinging to him. These are evidences of grace that he's shown me that have helped me in moments of doubt. Look for those. Where has God been faithful? Write them down. Have it be your, your doubt page of your notebook. When you're struggling, you go back to that and you say, God is faithful. He has been. He will continue to be. Where's God been faithful to you? Final question is this. Where are my emotions I feel stronger than the truth that I know? I think it's so easy for us to let our emotions become the driver for truth. And this, this happens, right? When, when something happens and we're just emotionally a wreck. We don't know what to do. And we think, well, if I feel this way, then God must be that way. Or this other thing, this must be true. I must have been wrong. But the problem with our emotions is that they're fleeting. <laughs> right? They're unstable. They're, they're shaky. But the truth of who Jesus is, is unshakable. In the times where our emotions try to get the, the best of us and maybe change what we think or what we believe, we must remember what is true. Where are you anchored? Where's God been faithful to you? Where are the emotions that you feel stronger than the truth you know? Earlier I mentioned reading a quote from someone who was reflecting on a tragedy that they walked through as a teenager, and those words are from a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you may be familiar with her. She is now in her 70s. She's lived her entire life since that accident in a wheelchair as a, as a quadriplegic. Jen, Johnny went on to start a worldwide ministry to accelerate the gospel going to the disability community. And in some of her work, she talks about how her life and, and this tragedy that caused her to wrestle with so much doubt and so much anger as a teenager, it fueled a deep faith and dependence on Jesus. She alludes to this when she talks specifically about her wheelchair. She, she said this, she writes this, I hope in some way I can take my wheelchair to heaven. 
with my new glorified body, I will stand up on resurrected legs and I'll be next to the Lord Jesus. And I'll feel those nail prints in his hands. And I will say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know I mean it because he will recognize me from the inner sanctum of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. He will see that I was one who identified with him in sharing in his sufferings. So my gratitude will not be hollow. And then I'll say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And now, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. (laughs) Johnny's story is amazing. And it's an amazing testimony to the power of God. Where is her belief anchored? Because of her faith in who Jesus is, what he's done in her life, she can look at her circumstances and and she can see how it caused her to trust him more. Her life of suffering caused her to identify with Christ in a very real way, in his sufferings. The more her belief was anchored in Jesus, the more more of his grace she experienced every single day. As followers of Jesus, our belief in the gospel, that is what defines us. This is our anchor. So when we think our doubts are too big or or that we're struggling with, with unbelief, we can know that we will never get to a point where God will let go of us. Those will be opportunities where we can lean on him. We can rest in the strength he provides us. And in our weakness, that is when we can see how strong Christ truly is. As we grow in our faith and in our trust of who God is and and, and really this understanding of who we are, let us do so anchored in the truth of Jesus Christ and in his work for us, especially in the midst of our doubts. Let's pray. God, I, as I read this passage today, I, I just, I resonate with this man. His desire to come to you, to be, to, to see his son healed. And God, just seeing the tangled mess of his belief and his unbelief. God, I am just encouraged by that because there's times I walk through things. We walk through things in life that we are this man. I do believe. Help my unbelief. God, in those moments, I just ask for your help for me, for us to anchor ourselves to you, to look at your faithfulness in saving us, providing for us, and standing on on truth in the midst of our emotions doing crazy things. God, I thank you 
that all throughout the scripture we see Jesus show grace to people like this man, to people like us, those who struggle with unbelief sometimes. God, I pray that you help us cling to you amidst whatever doubts we may be walking through this morning. Anchor ourselves to the truth of the gospel. Look at your faithfulness and to do so in faith, knowing that you love us and you care for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.